there is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the twilight zone. Tonight's episode of The Twilight Zone introduces another name into the mix and instead of just reeling off the episodes that he wrote, I'm going to I'm going to read a little passage from the book Dimensions Behind The Twilight Zone and that's by Stuart T. Stanyard and that's a book that I've spoke about in the past and I highly recommend it. It's a book of interviews, also some essays on The Twilight Zone too. So in the book, there's a nice long interview with a gentleman by the name of George Clayton Johnson. And Stuart Stanyard asks him the question, could you elaborate a little about each of the stories you did for the show? Anything behind the scenes? And George Clayton Johnson's response was, I wrote All of Us Are Dying, a short story that Rod Serling bought that he retitled The Four of Us Are Dying, and he wrote a marvellous script for it. The same thing happened with a story called Execution. When I originally wrote it, I called it The Hanging of Jason Black. Rod changed the man's name to Joe Caswell and the title to Execution. The third story I sold him was called Sea Change, but then I had to buy it back because of censorship problems, the cutting off of a man's hand. The fourth story was A Penny for Your Thoughts, in which Dick York plays the part of a mild bank clerk who discovers one strange morning that he has the ability to read people's minds, and he can tell you what everyone is thinking. Rather than feeling like it's a gift, he feels like it's almost a curse looking into what the people around him are thinking. And then I went on from that point to write A Game of Pool, which had Jonathan Winters and Jack Klugman. And then I went on to write Nothing in the Dark, which had Robert Redford and Gladys Cooper in it. It's a very, very touching story, and in my view, the best one, next to maybe A Penny for Your Thoughts. So there you have it. He contributed quite a few episodes to The Twilight Zone. A Game of Pool, that's one I'm looking forward to getting to. But right now, let's take a look at the first episode that he wrote. The Four of Us Are Dying. His name is Arch Hammer. He's 36 years old. He's been a salesman, a dispatcher, a truck driver, a con man, a bookie, and a part-time bartender. This is a cheap man, a nickel and dime man, with a cheapness that goes past the suit and the shirt. A cheapness of mind, a cheapness of taste, a tawdry little shine on the seat of his conscience, and a dark room squint at a world whose sunlight has never gotten through to him. But Mr. Hammer has a talent discovered at a very early age. This much he does have. He can make his face change. He can twitch a muscle, move a jaw, concentrate on the cast of his eyes. And he can change his face. He can change it into anything he wants. 
Mr. Archie Hammer, jack of all trades, has just checked in at 3.80 a night with two bags, some newspaper clippings, a most odd talent, and a master plan to destroy some lives. First broadcast on the 1st of January 1960, and as we said, based on a short story by George Clayton Johnson, which he called All of Us Are Dying and was apparently known as Rubberface 2 for, for a spell. And this one was directed by John Brahm. Now, we've already come across John Brahm before in Judgment Night and Time Enough at Last. And if you look at his resume, you'll see that he was a very, very busy director at that time. He contributed to a good few anthology shows at the time. It, it seemed to be, I guess, a golden age for anthologies in those days. He directed a couple episodes of The Outer Limits and about 10 episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and about 12 episodes of Thriller and that's the anthology that was presented by Boris Karloff. Now straight off the bat, Brahm employs a really kind of hyper-real environment with all of the street signs and lights in the episode. It, It seems a little cliche now, you know, this sort of this mixture of music and you know street lights and street signs all sort of clashing together you know we've seen it a lot over the years maybe it was even cliche then i don't know or maybe it was just of its time i do like it though it seems that the episode got its tone from you know the situations that the main character gets into down the line he visits a jazz club and he visits a gangster too so it kind of melds those things to tell you the world the hammer is living in and you know it's a very kind of street level urban world cheap hotels smoky jazz clubs gangsters and and of course you got that jerry goldsmith score in the background too just bringing that all to life i think some people might see it as a negative that maybe it dates the episode a little because it is rather stylized yet i'm not sure it adds too much to the episode i mean if you take for example the dream sequence in perchance to dream you know that was all angles and you know skewed perspective it was it was justified in that it was a dream and it was a dream that progressively turned into a nightmare whereas here it's just kind of amplifying the city vibe you know if it had been filmed in a more conventional way which the episode does seem to settle into you know, it probably would have just been fine anyway, but I like it, and like I say, it's one of the things about The Twilight Zone that I do like. It's Americanisms. It's an American original show that at times features a lot of images and fashions and Americana that have a, you know, quite a romantic connection to. Almost like I've said in the past, as a kid growing up in Britain, America was where all the big stuff happened, you know, and where we where we look to for our adventure. Anyway, I'm going off on a bit of a tangent now. So we see Arch Hammer stepping into a hotel, the Hotel Real. That seems to be a definite choice of name, which I'm sure is significant somehow. Perhaps this is one to to throw out there to the listeners. You know, maybe you can fill your thoughts in on that on the website. You know, our, our friends Ben and Stephen have been posting some great thoughts on episodes on the site recently. I guess for me, it, it does give me a little start to see that because the episode has been kind of unreal up until now with that, that very stylized look to it. As Rod Sailing delivers his opening narration, there's this great scene where... 
arch hammer the main character is shaving and and every time the camera pans back and forth you'll see that he's changing his face as he shaves now you don't have to be a genius to see how the shot was done it's obviously an empty mirror you know with a, a space behind it and the actors will swap places as the camera points away and you can also see that the the measured way that they move so each person on each side of the mirror can keep in sync and even the, even down to the way he reaches down and slowly picks up his cigarette but i think it still works really well though it's really nice and effective a nice simple practical effect that still works but before we get into the episode i'd just like to talk about some of the decisions that they made about how they were going to approach arch hammers changing the casting director by the name of millie gus said at first I thought we could use one actor and have him change his appearance. But this was ruled out when we timed it. One actor would be in the makeup room longer than he'd be in front of the cameras. So they made the choice that they would use several actors, but they were very smart about it. You know, the idea in itself is pure fantasy, but at this point in the, the show's run, I think it had earned enough suspension of disbelief from the audience that they'll go along with the fact that Hammer can do this, you know, without asking for an explanation. I personally don't really give it a second thought that we don't know why he can do it or how he does it. And even if you think about it too hard, you could pick holes in the fact that he you know he manages to change his voice too and he's more than likely probably never met the people that he's in impersonating but he manages to pull their voices off to a T. but i guess because they are quite smart about the actors they cast to play the roles that arch hammer morphs into because they were very smart about it it really helps with that suspension of disbelief i think there are a few interesting quotes about the the casting process and what they decided to do. They eventually decided that all of the actors should be about 5 feet 10 and weigh 150 pounds. Buck Houghton remembers the casting as being really difficult. He said, it's bad enough when you've got two lookalikes to work with, but when you get four, it's a nightmare. I think we wound up with three blondes at one time and couldn't find a fourth that was anywhere in the ballpark. So three guys were out of a job. So this is when they decided to go with people with dark hair and, and brown eyes. And Millie Gus remembers that they were all told to dress alike. Dark suits and ties, white shirts. I'm sure they all thought they were going to a wedding when they arrived. We immediately eliminated two of them because of their light eyes. And then we changed the interviewing procedure we usually follow. It's our custom to interview each individually. This time, we lined them up in chairs against one wall and allowed them to ask us questions like, what's this story all about? Why will four of us be needed for one role? After the questioning period ended, we knew the four who were similar enough in drive and ability to play the roles. So it's, it's a very interesting kind of dynamic there. You know, they, they had to be different enough that you could see that arch hammer was changing to a different person but similar enough that it wouldn't be ridiculous to think that he could do it so like i say they decided they should all be five feet ten inches tall weigh 150 pounds all have dark hair and they needed 
for them to be equally good as actors, and Millie Gus said each actor had to give and take from the other. All four had to possess the same drive, and none could be a grandstander. So now that they've got their actors in place, it's time the Arch Hammer goes out to destroy those lives. So thanks for the cheer. I hope you didn't mind my bending your ear. This torch that I found must be drowned. Or just, it just might explode. Make it one for my baby. So I think it's safe to assume with Arch Hammer that he's been a petty crook all his life probably and he's used his talent to his advantage. But now he, it looks like he's setting himself up for a while. Maybe he's gonna pull off a big score and, you know, maybe go to a certain place and stay there for a while. And I think the first part of the plan is to get himself a beautiful woman so he takes on the guise of a dead trumpet player called Johnny Foster and seeks out Johnny's girlfriend, Maggie. Now this is a really good scene, I think, and Beverly Garland really sells the, the heartache that Maggie's going through, but my favorite part of it has to be when Hammer, in the guise of Johnny, leaves the bar. And on the way out, one of the band that's playing in the bar recognizes Johnny and follows him out. Johnny, baby. Well, you got the wrong word. They said you were removed by a locomotive. <laughs> oh, Johnny, it's so great to see you here. Let me light your cigarette. I'll take the light, but you got the wrong guy. I'm real sorry, buddy. I, I thought you were the guy I just seen in the bar. I'm real sorry. Why not a beautiful dame? Why not? I never had a dish like that. I never been loved like that. Why shouldn't I? It's all too wonderful. I'll never find the word. Yeah, Maggie. Yeah. Why not? I think one of the reasons I like it so much beyond the fact that it's just a really good use of his ability is he just plays it so cool and then says, you know, no, I'm not who you think I am. And the musicians are just dumbfounded. But I think it's the only time in the episode that you really see Arch Hammer the man. Most of the time he's trying to pull off some piece of deception or running away from other people, but here he's standing there and following that scene with the when the musician comes out to speak to him, he stands there and he tries to justify to himself what he's about to do to this woman. You know, why not me, he says. 
And I guess Archammer hasn't been loved like that. You know, he's probably spent his adult life as someone else half the time or on the road the rest of the time. And I'm not saying I sympathize with him. That's not it at all. I, I don't sympathize with him, but you know, he's made this choice. But I also think in doing that, he's created quite a lonely existence for himself. You know, who would ever get close to a man like this? So while I think there is a lot of bravado and just plain meanness to him, there is probably still a part of him that is as human as the rest of us and misses the things that we all want. Now, the thing is, he's going to try and steal it rather than becoming a better man to get it for himself. So the next part of his plan is to get some money for this trip that he's going to be taking with Maggie and he does this by taking on the face of a dead gangster called Sterig and he's going to steal some money from the gangster that killed Sterig but he does end up getting discovered as he leaves and he gets chased by a couple of thugs. Just as a side note, the scene where Sterig goes to confront the gangster who killed him uh, the apartment that takes place in is actually Marty Sal's office from the 16mm shrine and it was redressed for this episode. So as he's trying to escape from the thugs, he pulls another switch and takes on the face of a boxer that he sees on a poster called Andy Marshak. I guess he is one of really the only insights we get into the changing process and it's going to become really important at the end of the episode. In order to do the change, he needs a certain amount of concentration. And now, because he's trying to get away from these gangsters, he's really anxious. And he's trying to calm himself down because he can't focus on the face that he wants to change into. But luckily for him, he sees that poster on the wall of Andy Marshak. Now this works quite nicely. The gangsters are put off and, and leave. But the only problem is, when he turns the corner, he runs into someone that knows Andy. Andy? Andy, what's the matter with you? Oh, Andy. Yeah, yeah I get it, yeah. Uh, what's new with you? How's the uh, journalism business? Huh? What's the matter with you? Something wrong with your mind? You punchy, Andy? Yeah, I'm punchy. <laughs> Why, am I supposed to recognize you? Yeah, I guess you would. We, uh, we met someplace before, huh? That's right. It was a long time ago, though. I don't remember you, old man. How do I know you? How do you know me? As a son should know his father. What kind of a game are you playing, Andy? I'm your son? You were. You were before you ran out. You were before you broke your mother's heart. Before you did dirt to a sweet, decent little girl who would have cut off an arm for you. But now you ain't my son. Now you ain't nothing to me. You're nothing. I hate your guts. Do you hear me? I hate your guts. So that went well. I guess this is the ultimate problem for someone with this talent, you know, bumping into someone and you don't know who they are, but they know you. 
Usually he's done his homework with the other people that he's taken on the persona of so far, but with this one he just didn't get that chance. Now this little scene is a setup, as we know, for the ending, and as always, if you're a new listener to the Twilight Zone podcast, I do tend to spoil every episode that we discuss, so I'll just give you a fair warning now. Now, in George Clayton Johnson's original story, the main character's talent was that he could appear as the person that whoever he was speaking to would want to see the most. Now, I haven't read that story. I don't know whether it's out there in its original form, but, you know, you could see that as an interesting premise and how someone could exploit that talent and take advantage of other people by doing it. The thing is, there are different reasons why we might want to see someone. And in the case of the character in the story, he pulls into a gas station and the attendant sees him as someone that he's been looking for for 10 years because he wants to kill him. So that's how that character meets his end. Now, Arch Hammer meets his end in a similarly poetic fashion. He goes to his hotel where there's a cop waiting for him to pick him up for some petty crime that he's committed in the past. That way you generally stand behind the door? When somebody I don't know unlocks my door, yeah, that's where I stand. Arch Hammer, huh? Detroit, Michigan. I've never been here. Of course you haven't. Neither was Henry Ford. Hmm. Get down for a bunker wrap, Hammer. I gotta put you on the book. You can make two calls when you get to the station. He does the old switch again. As they leave the hotel, he takes on Andy Marshak's face again. But the problem is, shortly after he does, Andy Marshak's father walks along and shoots him dead. Hey, old man. You got such a dead Andy. You owe for so many years. You owe for so many things. And now, you pay off, son. Hey, no, wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. You you got the wrong guy. I swear to you, you got the wrong guy. I got the right guy. No, please. Please, wait. Put the, put the gun down. I'll show you. I'll show you, honest. But I got to think. I got to concentrate. Just put the gun down. You'll see. I, I got to concentrate. I love the concept of this episode, and although, like I said earlier, you could pick it to pieces if you really want to, you know, how does he change his voice, how come his hair is perfectly styled after he changes, you know, that kind of thing, I think it's fine, it's okay, I personally don't really care, and I do think that they successfully give the impression that this is one man changing, and maybe it's just me because... There doesn't seem to be anything written about it, but Arch Hammer in his true form does have an almost blank slate look to him. He's quite neutral, whereas the other people he changes into have more character to their faces and, especially in the case of the first two, are quite a bit more animated. So it's almost like when he's himself, he's just on autopilot, but he lives when he's taken on the persona of someone else and I also think and maybe this one is just me but he does have a very kind of matte complexion like maybe they did make him up to look slightly artificial I guess rubber in the way he looks but I don't know you know let me know if you agree or I'm just talking rubbish on that one but seeing as apart from the final shot where Arch Hammer is dying and the kind of phasing between shots in 
an understandably primitive kind of way. You know, you have to make allowances for the time it was made, but the rest of the time they they do the changing all in camera and I really like how they choreographed the switches you could you know that final switch where Arch Hammer goes into the revolving door and he goes back into the building you can imagine the actor playing Andy Marshak just standing in the wings to one side waiting to step in and you know they work all these gags beautifully and they never miss a beat all the way through the episode and apart from that I think they the actors who have to react off that really sell it too so I think it's a really solid episode I probably wouldn't put it on a favourites list but I don't have any complaints about it I enjoy it quite a lot I guess the funny thing for me is if someone came up to me and said you know do you want this talent I'm going to give you the talent to be able to change your face like that I'd be like yeah sure you know it sounds great it sounds like a lot of fun but you know when you think about it Perhaps maybe accepting just casual interaction with strangers, you know, going to the shop and buying a newspaper or something. If you interact with anyone beyond that, striking up a friendship or especially a relationship, furthermore, interacting with people who may know the person you're imitating, the line from it being a bit of fun to it really being a violation comes really fast. Some might say immediately. In the episode, the irony is that Arch Hammer gets killed for the only thing in the episode that he didn't do. He takes on these personas for what he can get out of them, the the perks, you know, Maggie's affection, which when you take that to its natural conclusion and think that he's going to run away with Maggie and obviously sex comes into the equation, the moral implications of that are quite horrible when you think about it taking the gangster's money well i guess no one's gonna lose too much sleep over that but he's cherry picking these things from people's lives to take for himself but in the end he really has to face the consequences of that if you're going to use someone's identity for profit and cherry pick the things that you want from their lives you're eventually going to have to pay some of their debts too he was our hammer a cheap little man who just checked in. He was Johnny Foster who played a trumpet and was loved beyond words. He was Virgil Sterig with money in his pocket. He was Andy Marshak who got some of his agony back on a sidewalk in front of a cheap hotel. Hammer, Foster, Sterig, Marshak, and all four of them were dying. mentioned was it in the last episode maybe i can't remember but i mentioned that thankfully here in the uk we we are getting the release of those blu-rays that our friends in america and australia have been enjoying so the first season's going to be out uh, late april i think and i do have a copy of that the four of us are dying is one of the first episodes that i got to see in hd and i've got to say it looks absolutely fantastic Um, So I will be doing some sort of review of these on the site and probably on the podcast too. Not quite sure how that, what form that'll take yet. I guess, you know, in speaking about the episodes, I'm preaching to the converted anyway. And it's what we do in the podcast every week. So I'm not going to spend too much time on the episodes. 
but maybe touch on some of the extra features that are there and the look and the sound that kind of thing so i'll put that together over the next couple of weeks probably but yeah absolutely beautiful i um I now know why all the all the reviews overseas have been so good. They really do look good, so look out for that. A few thank yous, as is customary. I like to thank everyone who leaves an iTunes review. Uh, I will mention I generally only check the UK and the US because that seems to be where the subscribers are. So if you have left a review anywhere else in the world, then do let me know because I, I do want to send you some thanks. But over in the US, our friend Agent Shadow from the X-Files Truth podcast, great podcast, uh, left us a kind review. So thank you, Agent Shadow. And also someone by the name of Mazipag999, a fan of the Twilight Zone for 40 years, and it's his favorite television program. So it's it's really good to hear that you enjoy the podcast. So thanks very much, Mazipag999. And I also have... A review on the UK iTunes, which is good. Tend to be more stateside, but so it's nice to see another one on the UK side. Gentleman by the name of Woody from Glasgow. So thanks for your kind words. Glad that you're enjoying the podcast. Okay, so the next episode coming up is quite an important one, I think. It's uh, it's one that's held up in high regard by a lot of people. So uh, let's see whether it lives up to its reputation. Next time we'll be talking about Third from the Sun. So I hope you'll join me then. Bye-bye.